0: The following audio is from LifeHouse Church. We hope you are blessed by this message and encourage you to connect with us on social media or LifeHouseChurch.org. Well, good morning. It is my privilege to be here with you to bring the message and first to fail. Uh, Can I just say this? Yes, your lead pastor is crazy enough to let the youth pastor speak. I don't know what's wrong with them. Let me hear you, LifeHouse youth. I know you're up there. That's what I'm talking about. If you didn't know, if you're a student, if you're a middle school, high schooler, you can actually not sit with your parents. Like, I don't want to sit with my parents. You can go up in the balcony and sit with our students up there. So I'm just letting you know, if you want to move right now, you can move right now. <laughs> but no, it's, it is my honor. It's my privilege. I think maybe uh, Pastor Patrick wanted me to preach this first part and First to Fail because he wanted me to be the first to fail. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, to all those online, welcome. Um, I want to ask a question to start off. I want to ask you this. What if you couldn't fail? What would you do if you couldn't fail? Now, maybe you're actually thinking about that question right now, and you're running through your brain. Or maybe you're like me, and you hate the what-if game. I don't know if you yeah, I hate the what-if game. It's like the worst for me. Sometimes my wife will ask me what-if questions. I tend to be like, look, I don't, I'll don't. i worry about it if we ever get there. But growing up, I had a friend named Jacob, and, and Jacob loved the what-if game. And he would play it all the time. And this was a literal conversation. I would be like, man, I really wish I had enough money to go to the movie with you guys. And he'd be like, Corey, what if? (laughs) And I knew it was coming. (laughs) I was like, this is going to be the dumbest question ever. What if you had a million dollars? I'd be like, then I'd go to the movie with you, Jacob. Like, (laughs) <laughs> it's the dumbest game. Like, what if? Well, of course. I think if we asked that question, what if you knew you couldn't fail? Well, then all of us would be like, I'd be doing awesome stuff all the time. Like, the coolest thing I could think of, I'd be doing it. The greatest thing I could think of, I'd be doing it. And that's how we answer that question. Because I think all of us were like, duh. I'd be doing whatever I want. But I think reality check is we fail. We fail and it hurts. We fail and it's embarrassing. And so, when asked this question, we kind of just throw it aside because failure hurts. I thought this would be a fitting story because the Olympics are upon us and you've probably been watching, but for, for over a thousand years, athletes and experts alike thought it, it was impossible to break the four-minute mile. Like, there's no way that it could be done. The body just cannot reach that limit. In the 1940s, that mile, the record was pushed to four minutes and one second. And there it stood for nine years. And so for nine years, athletes thought, well, maybe the experts were right. Maybe that we actually can't break this barrier, that it's impossible. The body has reached its limit. That's as good as it can do. Now, enter a man named Roger Bannister. Now, Roger was, he was determined to be a world-class athlete. And he trained and he trained and he trained for six years. And in the 1952 Olympics, after training all this time, he was defeated. He failed in multiple events, including the one-mile race. Defeated. But he didn't let it stop him there, because two years later, Roger would run the mile in three minutes, 59.4 seconds. Now we have to ask, did Roger beat the record in three minutes and 59 seconds? Or instead, did he beat the record in eight years, three minutes and 59 seconds? Eight years of, uh, of trying to succeed, eight years of failure and embarrassment and struggling and in frustration. Ultimately, Roger Bannister became the first to fail that finally succeeded. See, this this kind of idea and this concept is actually written right into the Olympic creed, which reads this way. It says, the most important thing in the Olympic Games is not to win, but to take part. Just as the most important thing in life is not the triumph, but the struggle imagine how many victories would have been won or even fought if we didn't fear failure. You should think about that. How many of your victories would have been won or even fought if you didn't fear failure? But ultimately, that's what we do, isn't it? We fear it. We avoid it because we know that, that if I step out here, that I'm probably going to fail. If you're like me, you've got like, like a success rate. You're like 50% chance. I'll oh, go for it. Like, and maybe I'll succeed. But if it's any lower than that, I'm not even going to attempt it because I probably will fail and it'll hurt and it'll be embarrassing. And so we've come to live a life that just avoids it. We don't even attempt risks We don't even attempt to to step out into something, into the unknown, because we fear failure. See, and as Christians, we're not exempt from this either. I'd be lying to you if in a moment, coming into a service like this, that if I wasn't standing over there, having this internal battle in my head where I'm basically asking the question, what if God doesn't show up? Your campus pastor could relate to this. Worship leaders, we have these moments like, What if God doesn't show up? As a Christian, what if God doesn't show up in your life? And when we ask a question like that, what it does is it causes us to stress and we worry and we doubt. Instead, what we should be asking, What if He does? What if God actually shows up? Can you see how right now that changes? Like what if he actually shows up and he does something amazing, something I've never seen before, something that I can't possibly even imagine? What if he does something brand new and fresh in this place today? What if he shows up? You should be excited, anticipating what God is going to do. I think as Christians, we need to start asking that question more. What if God actually shows up? That's a what-if game that I'm ready to play. I could play that one. See, this is actually what the beginning of the church looks like. In the book of Acts, we see that, the start of the church, and I'm gonna kind of fast forward through the first two chapters, but basically, Jesus is here on the earth, and and he dies, and he's risen again, and having completed his task in Acts, we see him meeting with his disciples and say, look, I'm gonna go back and be with my heavenly father, but I'm gonna send someone who's even greater than myself, because I lived with you, but this person is gonna live within you, and his name is the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus goes back to be with his heavenly father, And the disciples are all meeting together in one place. And scripture tells us that that place was shaken with a loud sound from heaven. And in that moment, all the disciples were filled with the Holy Spirit. And a crowd begins to gather, and they they wondering what's going on. They heard this noise, and what could this be? And Peter, boldly now filled with the Holy Spirit, begins to preach the good news, the gospel, what Christ did for every single one of us. Scripture tells us that that day about 3,000 were baptized and added to the kingdom of heaven. And so begins the church. And now we fast forward to chapter 3, and we see Peter and John, two of Jesus' disciples, and they're heading to the temple. They're going there to worship and to pray, and on their way, they see a man, and this man has been crippled from birth. He's been born that way. And they see him outside the temple courts, and, and people actually bring him there every day to beg for money. And on the way, Peter sees him. He catches his eye and he approaches him. And the man, the man asked Peter and John for money. And this is their response. We find this in Acts 3, verses 6 through 8. It says, then Peter said, silver or gold I do not have. But what I do have, I give you. And I'm going to stop there for a second. Because what the world told this man he needed was money. The world told him, look, all that you need right now in your state is money. And the first thing Peter says is, look, I don't have what you think you need. By the world's context, I don't have anything to give you, but here's what I do have. And we keep reading. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk, and then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. People begin to notice. People begin to to actually see, and they're like, wait a second, I know this man. I know that he's been outside the temple courts begging for money. He's been crippled from birth. I've seen him before, and all of a sudden, wait a second, he's in the temple courts, and he's walking and praising and jumping, praising God. What's happening? And so a crowd begins to gather the same way that it did before when the disciples were filled with the Holy Spirit. A crowd begins to gather, and Peter begins to preach. And it feels like this moment is just like a setup for something huge. Like God is gonna do something amazing in the lives of the people through Peter preaching. But all of a sudden it's shut down because there's religious leaders nearby and they hear Peter proclaiming in the name of Jesus Christ, wait a second, that savior that we crucified, that false savior. So they swoop in and they arrest Peter and John. And it feels like this moment is a failure. I don't know about you. I read this moment of scripture. I'm like, man, I think back to the moment where 3,000 were baptized. This could have happened here. But the words of Peter are silenced because of religious leaders. And I don't know if maybe you felt in your life like something has been on the precipice, like something is about ready to break free. Something's about to move, and all of a sudden it gets shut down because of something that hurts you or an experience or a loss or, or a challenge. Maybe you come up against a wall and it just gets shut down. This feels like this moment, like, God, man, you were about to do something amazing. It feels like failure. It looks like failure because now Peter and John, they're held captive. They're prisoners. So if you're taking notes this morning, I encourage you to write this down. This is the first point. Our willingness to fail will become our step of faith. Our willingness to fail will become our step of faith. Acts 4. Jump with the next chapter, verse 7 says this. They, meaning the religious leaders, they had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? What do you think you're doing, and who do you think you are? See, remember, by the, by the world's context, Peter and John had nothing. They had nothing for the man. They had no answer that was fitting because the religious leaders had crucified their Savior. By the world's standards, they had nothing. But in their nothingness, they were willing to trust God with it. They're willing to trust God with their nothing and simply ask him to show up, and he did. I think think about myself, about us, and put in that same situation, how many of us would have asked? How many of us would have even thought to ask God for a miracle? How many of us would have even stopped to talk to the person? How many of us would have just walked by because we think, I don't have anything to give. I don't have anything to say. There's nothing that I can do that can actually improve your situation. I don't have anything for you. How many of us would have thought that about ourselves? See, but Peter and John now being held prisoner and they're being questioned. And their only response to this is God. It's God. Acts 4, verse 12, the words of Peter, he says, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. How many of us actually put ourselves into situations When afterwards, when we're questioned, our response is, only God. I don't know about you, but I want to find myself in more situations like that. I could be honest with you right now in this moment, given this opportunity to speak, and I spoke last night too, and I had this moment before I got on the stage. It wasn't in my notes. I wasn't even going to say it, but I had this moment where I realized I'm a pastor's kid and I grew up a pastor's kid. And my dad uh, was a pastor and he was a pastor here for years and he preached on this stage for years. And now it's been two years now that my dad has passed away on a missions trip in India. And I dealt with so much hate and so much anger. And I can honestly stand up here. This being a moment, we're now given the opportunity to preach on the same stage that my dad preached on for years, that I had this moment last night where I said, only God. And that's not to like share a story to say why I'm up here on the stage. No, it's to say it's not me. I I don't know what it is. I I can hardly even describe it, but all I can say is it's only God. I should not be here. I should have no reason to be here. It's only God and I want more moments in my life and I understand it's scary to ask that thinking about my situation and losing my father, but it's scary to say I want more moments like this where I can look back at the journey that God has taken me on and I can say, it's only because of you that I'm even standing. Only God. See, because we desperately, we so desperately want to live a life that matters, Every single one of us. We want to live a life that has significance, that has impact, but sin. There's this thing called sin in our lives. We're all born with it. It comes natural to us. And here's the lie that sin wants to tell you. Sin wants to tell you, you have nothing. There's nothing that you can do. There's nothing you can say. There's nothing that you can give to to make your life better, to make someone else's life better, let alone your family or your neighborhood, your community, or the world. You have nothing, but God came for your nothing. Parents, you can relate to this. I have two sons Maddox, he's three, and Aiden will be turning one year uh, this month, which is crazy. And as a parent, I can honestly say this. They don't need anything. They don't have to have anything for me to love them. They're my children. I love them because they're my children. I love them. They're my everything. I would give anything for them. And you have a heavenly father that thinks the same way. He loves you no matter what. He loves you even though you have nothing to give. Look, God sees us. He sees our problem. He sees our sin. Because of our sin, we really have nothing to give. But despite all of that, God came anyway. You may feel right now in this moment that you have nothing. Just because you have nothing or you feel like you have nothing, it doesn't make you nothing. Some of us need to hear that again. Just because you feel like you have nothing, it doesn't make you nothing. Because if you're like me, you've had this conversation with God, God, who am I? Who am I, God? What can I possibly do? What can I possibly say? How in the world could you, could you use me? Who am I? And constantly his response back to me is this, you're my son. You are a son and a daughter of God, son and daughter. And I think every single one of us in this place, we need to start viewing ourselves more like a son and daughter of God, realizing that God, in our sin, he stepped out of heaven and he came to earth as Jesus Christ. And the sole mission of Jesus Christ was to die on the cross for all his sons and daughters. He defeated death, hell, and the grave by raising again for all his sons and daughters. And he grants access to the power of the Holy Spirit for all his sons and daughters. You are a son and a daughter through faith. If you take anything away from this message, I pray that it's you know more of who you are in Christ you begin to view yourself differently in Christ? you have more than you think because you're a son and a daughter? Secondly, if you're taking notes, if we're going to be the first to fail, we must be willing to start even with nothing. If we're going to be the first to fail, we must be willing to start even with nothing. You might be thinking right now, man, he repeats himself a lot. I'm a youth pastor. I kind of have to. (laughs) I see you guys taking notes. That's because I said it twice, right? Yeah. Like, wait, what did he say? I wasn't paying attention. (laughs) You have to be willing to start even with nothing. Look, the enemy of finishing anything is starting something. I think it's something that we can all relate to because I think every single one of us have been there and not done that, right? We've all had these 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 feelings where like, man, I should really I should really start running or I should really run a marathon or I should write a book or I should really start saving money or I should really start investing money or I should should really start you know talking to my neighbor or I should really do my homework, students or I should really study, students. Um, uh, <laughs> Like, we've all been there. I should really do this, but I don't. I'm I'm avoiding it because I'm fearful of the outcome. Because I don't know where it's going to lead me. See, we have to be willing to start no matter what. Even with nothing, when it feels like we have nothing, we have to be willing to start. If you're going to fail, be the first one to fail. Be like, God, sign me up. I'll be the first one to fail. Because I'm willing to trust you. I'm willing to be obedient to you and put my faith and my trust in you. See, there's an art to the start, and it's called faith, and you can tweet that. There's an art to the start, and it's called faith. What is faith? Faith, Trust, there we go. I heard it yelled out. Faith is simply being willing to say, God, you know what? I'm going to step out no matter what. Faith is having that kind of like Indiana Jones moment, right? Where you step out and there's nothing there and all of a sudden God's footing catches you. That's like the coolest moment in the movie, right? The, the camera pans around and it reveals like, okay, never mind. I don't know if you're with me or not. If you haven't seen Indiana Jones, there's something wrong with you. But um, faith is that moment, right, where you step out into the void of nothingness and you trust that God is going to catch you. And when you step down on firm footing, all of a sudden you're like, what? Like you have this moment where God catches you. And can I tell you this? There is no way that you're going to build your faith if you don't step out into the void. If you want more faith, you need to step up to the starting line. You need to take the first step. So let me ask you this. What starting line is God calling you to? I want you to think about it. What's he calling you to? What's the area right now where you need, to, you need to step out? You need to step up to the starting line, and you need to start learning. You need to start growing. You need to start developing new skills and new habits, and you need to step out in faith and trust God. What's your starting line? And then once you get there, here's the thing. Once you get there, don't be threatened into silence and into insignificance. Don't let the world threaten you. You stand there boldly and you step out boldly, just like Peter and John did. In this moment, they're held prisoners. And being prisoners, they're still bold in their response to these religious leaders. And because of their boldness, this is the response of the religious leaders. We find in Acts 4.13, it says this. When they, the religious leaders, saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men... They were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. Lastly, if we're going to be the first to fail, obedience is our starting line. It's obedience, it's radical obedience to God. See, being a Jesus follower, a Christian, whatever you want to call it, it's so much more than just being a fan of God, a fan of Jesus. It's more than hitting a like button. It's more than hitting a follow or a subscribe button. It's more than that. Because our faith in Christ, it should compel us to action. We are followers of Christ because he's calling us to move. He's calling us to go. He's calling us to live a life of action. Look, they call it the book of Acts because it's the acts of the apostles. It's not the beliefs of the apostles. It's not the words of the apostles. It's not the political stance of the apostles. It's not the Facebook status or the social media posts of the apostles. No, it's the acts of the apostles. Because their faith in Christ and what he did for them compelled them to move. They stepped up to the starting line and they stepped into the void of the unknown, trusting God with every step. And so began the church. See, this call, it changes everything. This call to radical obedience to God, it changes how we view things, it changes how we live. Because let me say this, when you step out into the void and when God catches you, When you step out into the void, and and there will be moments, trust me, you know there will be moments where you're going to fall. You're going to fail. You know, being a Jesus follower does not mean that everything is rainbows and sunshine and unicorns. Like, no, you're going to fail. But in the moments, even when you fail, when your trust and your faith is in God, he picks you back up and he puts you on your feet and he keeps you moving forward. And in those moments, both where when you step into the void and God catches you, and both when you fall and he picks you back up, people are watching. And they're waiting for your response. This person that calls himself a Jesus follower, how are they going to respond to when the world hurts them? And I tell you what, when you respond in bold obedience and faith to God, just like the religious leaders, they step back and they say, wait a second. You've been with Jesus. I can clearly see. You're just ordinary men. You have been with Jesus. And in this moment, something is different. They see something different. The world sees something different within you. Acts 4, 18 through 20. The religious leaders, they're, they're, they're persistent. They're trying to silence Peter and John again. So it says this, Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. And in this moment, the religious leaders they have nothing else to say. Like, what happened? Someone was healed, they didn't do anything wrong, and they had to let them go. But no doubt, I have to think that those religious leaders are sitting there thinking, what? There's something about that Peter and that John, there's something about those guys. What do they have that I don't have? What's different about them? That even in the face of being arrested into the unknown of what we were going to do to them, they're still boldly proclaiming the name of Jesus Christ. See, I think we have to redefine success in our lives. What does success look like? As a Jesus follower, as a Christian, success is not having my name plastered on a billboard somewhere. It's not having my name written down in the history books. It's making his name known success as a Jesus follower is putting his name on the billboard of my life. It's writing his name down in the history book of my life as the beginning and the end and everything in between. Only God. So let me ask you this in response today. There may be people in this place that you've never actually said yes to God. I tell you this, that one small yes can radically change your life. One small yes in obedience to him will change everything. So I encourage you, if that's you, if you've never said yes before to Christ, would you say yes to him? In a moment, we're going to pray. I'm going to encourage you that it's just a simple yes. It's just simply saying, yes, God, I believe what you did for me. Yes. It's the greatest decision you'll ever make in your life. See, in your program, there's a, there's a place where you can check a box that says, I made a decision for Christ. And why do we want to know that? First and foremost, heaven is celebrating because of your decision. They're throwing a party. We want to celebrate. We want to celebrate with you. We want to pray for you, pray with you. We want to stay connected with you because we believe that you just made the greatest decision you've ever made in your life. And so first and foremost, welcome home and welcome to the family. You are a son and you are a daughter of God. For the rest of us, what starting line is God calling you to? What one small yes do you have to say today that will set you on a trajectory of radical obedience to him? That all of a sudden, at some point in your timeline, you're going to end up in a moment and you're going to look back and you're going to say, wow, only God could have done this. Because of one small yes, only God. Would you take a moment right now? would you pray? Thank you for listening to audio from Lifehouse Church, located in Hagerstown, Maryland. We believe that through Christ, life change happens here. So we invite you to connect with us further by visiting lifehousechurch.org.